Let's go to Jeff's case. So DB is a 52-year-old female with a past medical history of diabetes, hypertension, who I actually saw in second opinion after she started therapy. She had undergone a mastectomy and lymph node biopsy in 2007, November. At the time of surgery, she had an ERPR positive cancer, which was HER2 negative. It was 1.7 centimeters. She had a sentinel lymph node biopsy done, which showed one of two lymph nodes positive for disease. At the time, the thought was to bring her back to complete her axillary lymph node dissection, but given her positive sentinel node, she underwent PET imaging. At this time, it showed that she had metastatic disease to her lung. She had a PET-CT, which showed prominent focal hypermetabolism corresponding to the right lower lung, where there was a large lesion. She also had numerous ill-defined opacities throughout bilateral lung fields. She then underwent a fine needle aspiration of one of those lung lesions, which showed pathology consistent with the primary breast tumor, ERPR positive, HER2 new negative. Would this have been picked up on a CAT scan, or do you think it was the PET scan that really did it? It would have been picked up on a pre-operative CAT scan if done. Mark, just up to this point in terms of what happened, any comment on this sort of occult metastatic disease or diagnosis? Well, my first reflex before hearing the size of the lesion in the right lower lobe and the fact that it was multiple bilateral opacities, my first reflex was when you said they got taxolivastin, I wondered why they didn't start with endocrine therapy. But given the extent of the disease, that must have been the deciding factor by the clinician that this must have been an impressive PET-CT with quite a bit of disease. Did she have pulmonary symptoms at all? No. No, okay. But was it a scary-looking picture? It was definitely. You would have given her chemo and Vastin also? Correct. Okay. Okay. Then that's entirely reasonable. And then you could reserve the endocrine manipulation maybe for a consolidation step. If you're lucky enough to get a response from the induction chemo, that could then be maintained after you stop the chemo that can be maintained with an endocrine agent, for example. What do you think about this sort of diagnostic algorithm that she went through where she has one positive sentinel node and then goes for PET-CT? Well, in this case, it worked. How do you generally integrate CT or PET-CT into the initial diagnostic algorithm? I'm not a huge fan, actually. You know, I've had numerous occasions where bone scans are positive and PET-CTs are negative, so that's relatively insensitive in detecting bone metastasis. And oftentimes, the CT would have been adequate to diagnose a metastasis, so the PET is just an added expense, and I'm not sure that it gives you a lot of extra information for routine cases. And again, if it was only one positive lymph node after the dissection in an asymptomatic person with a normal chest X-ray, I assume her chest X-ray probably wasn't normal either in this case. Was it normal? I actually didn't have the chance to look at her chest X-ray. It was red as normal? It was red as normal. Okay, so in an asymptomatic patient with a normal chest X-ray and normal serum chemistries, LFTs, ALKFAS, et cetera, we wouldn't routinely recommend any further staging. So it's Would you get a bone scan? No. So it's remarkable that you picked this up at all in an asymptomatic patient. It was just one of those lucky scans, I think, in this case. So this lady has biopsy-proven metastatic disease. She could start on paclitaxel, Vastin, and then what? Well, this is at the point where she came to see me. Her big issue has been her diabetes. She's relatively Mm -hmm. in good health other than the diabetes, which she has had an issue in controlling it. And the problem she had been having when she came to see me is that the pre-medication with the Decadron has been throwing her blood sugars off for about three days a week following her chemotherapy day. Any other problems with the pre-medications, anxiety, sleeplessness? Exactly that. She has the evening after she has the Decadron, she can't sleep at all. And she had been having to take occasional benzodiazepines to get some sleep. So what happened? Well, I saw her, I went over all the imaging studies with her, and I talked to her about changing the taxol to 
Abraxane. Abraxane. Yeah. So I changed her to weekly Abraxane, and she actually tolerated it very well. No pre-medication with the steroids. What dose did you use? 100, 100 per meter yeah. square. I like that dose. Yeah. And what's been going on now? She's been doing very well. The other issue when Her she, diabetes is okay? Her diabetes is very well controlled. The other issue that she had when she came to see me was she was having some low-grade neuropathy. And surprisingly, this is resolved. Hmm. How many doses of paclitaxel did she get that led into this neuropathy? Three. What was she having? She just had some tingling. And I'm sure that this was obviously exacerbated from her underlying diabetes. But she had some grade one neuropathy and like a glove and stocking nature. And she never had neuropathy before? She never had it previously. And then what happened once she was on the NAB? She did very well. We did three months. Did the neuropathy progress? Neuropathy got better. Got better. (laughs) Interesting. What happened to the tumor? The tumor has shrunk dramatically. I got a repeat PET scan after three months, which showed a marked interval response with complete regression of the right lower lobe lesion and almost complete response to the bilateral pulmonary nodules. So what's your plan? I was going to give her three more months of NAB with the Avastin and then put her on an aromatase inhibitor. You're going to stop the Bevacizumab when you start the hormones? I was going to leave her on it for a year. Going to leave her on it for a year. Okay, Mark, can you kind of go back through this case and start out actually first with a decision about what kind of chemo and whether or not to use Avastin? So we have this situation, even though she wasn't symptomatic, where based on the imaging, it was kind of scary looking. Yeah. So not visceral crisis, but not asymptomatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of debate about what to do in that situation. Do you use a taxane with Bev? Which taxane? What about combination chemo? Mm-hmm. How do you think that through? So when I see bulk disease like this in a vital organ, it does give me pause. And those are the types of situations, short of having organ dysfunction, these types of situations still give me pause about the consideration for chemotherapy combinations for metastatic breast cancer. So I would have been thinking about combinations. And Which one? When it comes to combinations, you have a choice of cytotoxic combinations or a combination of a cytotoxic plus a biologic. Those are the two decisions. And if you look at therapeutic index, the combination of a cytotoxic plus a biologic, in this case, bevacizumab with weekly paclitaxel, in my view, that has clearly a better therapeutic index than any of the standard chemotherapy combinations and probably gives you as much bang for the buck in terms of progression-free survival, about a six-month spread in the original pivotal trial of bevacizumab done by ECOG. So I would have been thinking exactly the same thing, paclitaxel and bevacizumab, rather than a chemotherapy combination. And would you have started out with In a symptomatic patient in particular. Would you have started out with paclitaxel or because she was diabetic, start right I guess I would talk to her endocrinologist and take a look at her A1Cs and her history and how brittle she was, et cetera, et cetera. If she was well controlled and et cetera, I probably would have started with standard paclitaxel with minimal pre-medication with steroids. But exactly what was done is what I was thinking as you were presenting the case. As soon as you said the glucose went up, I thought immediately, well, this is an ideal choice for, you know, ABI 007, just make the switch and drop the steroids altogether. And so I think that was a very wise thing to do, and it paid off. What about NAB in situations where the patient isn't diabetic? You know, I'm probably less inclined necessarily to jump into that. The Ribbon 1 trial, which is now completed accrual, We'll look at some of these other taxane combinations with bevacizumab in a randomized fashion. The trial stratified according to chemotype, so maybe we'll get some more data. I'm sure there are ABI 007 plus bevacizumab trials that are ongoing. Well, there are data that's in, already in, been reported with that yeah. in terms of... Is that- Tolerability and safety, yeah. I mean, it's a reasonable 
combination. I don't know that there are data showing that it's superior to standard weekly paclitaxel when given in combination with bevacizumab. That is not available yet. Now, there's a big intergroup trial, I think, that started or going to be started. It's going to, everybody's going to get Bev, and then it's going to be Ix versus NAB versus paclitaxel. Is yeah, that right? I've seen that study design. What do you think about that concept? I don't know. I'm not a big fan of chemo A versus chemo B study designs in the modern era. I think we need to look at molecular pathology and develop new targeted agents. And which chemo you use is probably irrelevant and based solely on toxicity considerations. What about in a patient, let's say, who was sicker than this, who's very symptomatic visceral metastasis, would you ever consider giving combination chemotherapy plus BEV? Stefan Gluck at our institution at University of Miami showed a phase two pilot, which is still underway. He showed an interim analysis at ASCO of paclitaxel, gemcitabine, and bevacizumab. And he reported a very, very impressive response rate. These small numbers, just a single institution phase two trial. But so far, he's seeing really good results in just such patients, patients that have a concerning amount of disease burden so that a combination is the go-to regimen. And he likes the regimen. The safety data look perfectly acceptable. So that's an active regimen in metastatic breast cancer. What do we know about NAB and neuropathy? This patient has this interesting story. Do we have any real idea right now in terms of the time course? There's been talk about it resolves quicker with the NAB. What do we know about that? I don't think we know very much about it, to be honest with you. That data I did not find particularly compelling because it was many of those things are not captured well in oncology case report forms. It certainly would have been better to have some sort of quantitation of neurologic function as a true measure of whether or not there's true recovery. You don't know whether patients report recovery because they actually have recovery of neurologic function or whether they just adapt to lack of sensation and don't complain about it as much. So I don't think we're very good at capturing those kind of subtleties in case report forms of cytotoxic chemotherapy trials. So I sort of dismiss that analysis. In terms of your use or lack of use of NAB, is that financially generated? In other words, if the cost reimbursement for NAB was exactly the same as paclitaxel, would you be approaching this differently? I suppose so, because, you know, I've had enough cases of trouble with steroids, not just in diabetics. And, you know, you occasionally have patients who have a real tough time with it. I've even had a patient one time when I was in training who had a psychotic break on the steroid pre-medication. So, it's troublesome. It's certainly a lot of GI upset. I've seen a lot of gastritis and things like that with these medications. So all else being equal, it's paclitaxel, and it's just a reformulation of paclitaxel. So in any situation where one considers paclitaxel, then this becomes a consideration as well. If patients have good insurance coverage, I suppose it's not cost prohibitive. But in metastatic breast cancer, where palliation is the only goal, you're not going to increase the cure rate by switching to paclitaxel in metastatic breast cancer. So in that case, it may be less of a concern to me. How did this lady do in terms of Bev? Any hypertension or problems at all? No, actually, she's tolerated it very well. I've had no issues with hypertension or proteinuria. What do you think about this idea he has about continuing the Bev with the hormone therapy? I would recommend continuing bevacizumab until disease progression, even if you have to stop the taxane because of dose-limiting toxicity eventually, which eventually you will have to stop it. There's some interesting preclinical data of a rebound phenomenon after withdrawal of VEGF receptor-targeted agents in xenograft models, and that's disturbing to me, at least intellectually. And so theoretically, you know, the longer you give a VEGF-directed therapy, perhaps the better result you would see. So one wonders if, for example, in the original ECOG trial, if patients had been given bevacizumab for life, might there have been a survival signal in that trial if that would have been done? 
it wasn't, so we'll never know. But when I've discussed this issue with the late Judah Folkman, he also expressed concern to me that all of the planned ongoing adjuvant bevacizumab trials for all diseases, in fact, are giving it for a one-year time period empirically. When I told him that here in Miami shortly before his passing, he was horrified by that notion that we're giving it for such a short period of time when if you believe his original hypothesis of the angiogenic switch, you need to keep that delayed for as long as possible. As soon as you let it go, the switch will flip. And so I think that probably prolonged bevacizumab in this case is reasonable. And speaking of adjuvant bev, Mark and I both got a pretty, at least I got a big surprise last weekend when the NSABP meeting was here. We actually did an education symposium as part of the meeting. And right prior to that, Norm Walmark, I sat down with him, said, we're doing the Tic Tac study, which U.S. Oncology had been doing looking at TC versus TAC to see whether the anthracycline, they had now joined up and they actually announced it at our symposium, I think, to the group for the first time. And it's going to now be tic-tac-toe, right, Mark? So it's going to be tic-tac and then toe is going to be TC plus BEV. Right. What do you think? I thought it was pretty cool. I think it's a clever study design. I really like it. It exploits... So two by two? Well, two by two would have been the other possibility. That was my first thought when we discussed at the NSWP committee integration of a bevacizumab question into the tic-tac question backbone. I thought it was going to be a two-by-two, but when they really, you know, talked to statisticians and figured out what the minimal sample size would be to actually integrate a bevacizumab question, the solution was a three-arm study, in fact, to minimize patient resources. So I love it. I think it was very clever. Well, one of the things that was really cool is that by the NSABP joining and adding this other question, they were going to go from 2,000 patients to almost 4,000 much better ability to differentiate the adriamycin question, but then they also answer the second question. Yep. So, I mean, again, I know you all put people on trials. What do you think about that study? What do you think about adjuvant BEV and breast cancer in general studies? In colon, the trial accrued in two years, 2,700 people. It was very, docs in practice really liked the idea of presenting that as a possibility. And now we have the ECOG study, and now we're going to have this tic-tac-toe study of BEV and breast cancer. Bonnie, how do you think people, docs in practice and patients, are going to respond to adjuvant breast cancer BEV studies? Well, you know, we participate in that adjuvant trial, and I don't have any problem accruing. I think as a general approach, patients like the idea of an antibody. They're less frightened of it, not necessarily that that's the case. It's also not a placebo trial. And so I think it is well-received. I think it's pretty straightforward. It's easy for doctors to use. We're familiar with the drug and other tumor types. So I think the doctors are comfortable adding it in. Mark, what about the issue of BEV in the adjuvant setting? Any speculations? We have now the HER2 negative. We've got trials going. HER2 positive. We have the BETH study. What's that going to look at? And what do you think about BEV in the adjuvant setting? So the so-called BEFT study is TCH plus or minus bevacizumab in HER2-positive early-stage disease. It's an NSABP and CIRG collaboration. It's an interesting question because we had shown in a Phase two pilot study at UCLA that trastuzumab and bevacizumab, even given without chemotherapy to HER2-positive first-line metastatic breast cancer patients, has a very respectable response rate. It was in the 50% range. I think it was 54% at the time of the interim analysis. And so if there's really some synergy there between those two agents, then it might be possible to exploit it also in the adjuvant setting. So I like the study design, except for the relatively short duration of bevacizumab, which is a theoretical concern still, even in that trial, 
But all else being equal, I think it'll address the question with that duration of bevacizumab. What about safety issues when you combine bev, chemo, and trastuzumab? Obviously, you've looked at that. The key question is about cardiac, bev maybe going to increase the blood pressure, et cetera. How's that going to play out? We did see possibly a cardiac safety signal in our phase two trastuzumab, bevacizumab trial at UCLA. In the 50 patients, there were 13 reports of cardiac adverse events. All but one of those was asymptomatic, however. And among those asymptomatic ones, I looked at them very carefully, and many of them were trivial. I remember one patient had an EF that was like 75 or some unbelievable Lance Armstrong kind of ejection fraction to start, and then it dropped to 65 well, that's a grade one event according to NCI CTC criteria. I had another patient whose local laboratory in their echo lab lists 59 as the cutoff for normal. And so this patient started off at 65 or whatever and then went down to 58 or something. I think it was one point below that cutoff. And so that was called an abnormal echo. So that was a grade two event because it was less than the normal range. So a lot of the signals that we saw in those asymptomatic individuals were probably not clinically relevant and pretty easy to dismiss. That said, it was still a higher frequency than I would have expected from a trastuzumab alone situation. And there was one patient with bona fide clinical congestive heart failure documented by a Swan-Gantz catheter, so it was unambiguous. And so it is a major concern. All of the neoadjuvant and adjuvant trastuzumab BEV trials include a very stringent cardiac safety surveillance program with early stopping rules in case a problem emerges. And in HER2 negative, actually, at the symposium, Kathy Miller came and presented what she just presented at ASCO, which was just pretty reassuring data looking at cardiac function in HER2 negative patients getting anthracyclines and BEV. Was that your take? I found that very reassuring, but it still doesn't speak to the combined blockade of the ERB receptor, which might have different effects on the myocardium compared to chemotherapy. Rich? Given any consideration to the economic ramifications of long-term bevacizumab, you can pretty much destroy the entire system with it. It's really interesting when you think about, though, just like I asked the NAB question before, if that weren't on the table, how would you see the risk-benefit issue? I mean, for example, continuation of BEV, of course, it's a gigantic financial issue. But if you move that aside and look at the risks and benefits... It seems, I mean, it's a relatively safe therapy. I I think that's an if-dog-rabbit question. (laughs) I guess I look at it from more of an academic point of view because I just want to know proof of concept. Is there really a rationale for hitting both of these targets? And right now, this is the most expeditious way to answer that fundamental question. In the long term, I think there could be more cost-effective ways to hit both of those receptors and we'll have to exploit those possibilities. Consider that women on adjuvant therapy for breast cancer, the majority of them are going to live a very long time, and to keep up long-term bevacizumab in a large population of people like that would be ruinous. It's impractical, yeah. Alan? Can I just follow up on the NAB question? I've heard a lot of promotion of NAB as actually superior to Taxol based upon a phase two trial, where supposedly there was a higher response rate or a higher disease-free survival I take it you don't buy that data at all. No, I think the registration trial data was phase three compared head-on with every three-week paclitaxel, and it was superior for progression-free survival in that. I think he's talking about also, in addition, there was a randomized phase two looking at NAB versus docetaxel. Right. Okay, I see. That appeared to show superiority response rate with the NAB. Fine. I mean, you know... (laughs) 
I'm not really interested in these chemo questions particularly because I think you're going to pick the one with the greatest therapeutic index and because the efficacy questions are probably relatively trivial in metastatic disease. Bob? One of the concepts that's been tossed around the last couple of years are the albumin receptors in most breast cancers. And that's been a theoretical reason to combine bevacizumab with nab-paclitaxel to try to achieve some synergy. And I believe that ECOG is going back and repeating their study with nab-paclitaxel and bevacizumab. What do you think of that concept? I know we don't have any real data, clinical data to support it, but do you think on theoretical grounds that's a worthwhile idea to pursue? Oh, I think it's absolutely worth looking at because all you would need is a retrospective analysis if the bank tumors are available and you could look at spark expression and see if it relates to response to that agent. I think that's a very important consideration. If you could identify a patient subset, as you suggest, that would uniquely benefit from an albumin formulation, then by all means, you know, use that as a basis for selection moving forward. Sure, I think it should be looked at. Eventually, it would have to be looked at critically from a prospective point of view, but it would be easy enough to do a retrospective analysis, and I'm sure those are ongoing. And I think that prospective study that's going to be done by the intergroup, looking at those three BEV combinations, a big part of it's going to be translational to Mm -hmm. see if they can figure out who benefits from what. I just wanted to comment on the cardiac toxicity. I mean, I don't know about the rest of you, but I bet it's true that when you get an EF by echo, it's called an estimated ejection fraction. And talking to the echocardiographers, it really is just that. They're estimating the number. Similarly, by MUGA scanning, this still is not an accurate number. It's not a very precise number. Mm -hmm. And so the variability in what you're suggesting is cardiac dysfunction may just be noise. That was exactly my point. These were all done in different community hospitals in the UCLA network. Some were MUGAs, some were ECHOs. And so the results were very muddied. But nevertheless, there seemed to be more of them. You know, 13 out of 50 is more than I would have expected from just a garden variety trastuzumab trial. Cliff, you just do a study at Memorial with one laboratory. and it I was his dose-dense I know what you're talking about, because Memorial did a study, and one of the things they concluded was you've got to send the patient to the same lab repeatedly, right. not yeah. let them go have mm-hmm. the same test, the same lab, and sure. when you do that, you get a very different picture. Right. Well, I mean, that was done in this trial. I mean, the centers that were using MUGA, they had to use the MUGA throughout, but the fact that it was some hospitals use MUGA, some use ECHOs, some labs are better than others, there's a lot of variability. That's the bottom line. You're absolutely right. And so these larger phase three efforts will address the question. They have safety built into the study design with lots of surveillance and early stopping rules. From an ethical point of view, I have no problem with these trials moving forward, and hopefully they'll prove that a lot of this that we saw was noise. Isaac? I just want to get back to the TCH plus or minus BEV trial. What's the status of that trial, and are, they, are there uh, multiple submitted arms? submitted to the IRB at our institution, and I think the first several patients have already been accrued in the NSVP. And in terms of duration of therapy with bevacizumab? One year. One year of trastuzumab and one year of bevacizumab. Of course, there's also the ALTO trial. That's the other big major HER2 study. They're looking at lapatinib, trastuzumab, the combination, the sequence with chemotherapy. How do you think patients and docs in practice are going to respond to those two possibilities? Of course, the ALTO is controversial because one of the arms doesn't have trastuzumab in it. Well, again, I think it's a lot of it when you're out in practice, a lot of it is going to be driven by the financial aspect and what's covered and what the third-party payers will 
cover and that's interesting so they have to cover the bev or is it part of the trial the bev is provided in the beth trial by the sponsor how about the trastuzumab no the trastuzumab is not provided so, but just in terms of the randomization. Oh, yeah, no, I think from... Which from, one do you find more interesting? I or? think from a scientific standpoint, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think most patients, you know, as you know, patients are savvy now. You know, they, yeah. they're very knowledgeable and they know what's out there, what the options are. And I'm certainly receptive. I think most of the oncologists that I work with feel the same way. I think the good news is that it looks like both trials will be done. And it looks like the execution will be on schedule. The ALTA trial, I understand, is accruing on or ahead of schedule. The Beth trial is just launching. NSABP, is, their reputation is that they get their trials done, and so I'm confident the Beth trial will go on schedule, and so we'll have answers to both questions. I think it's a good thing. Well, the, also, the NSABP is sort of looking at the ALTO question in the neoadjuvant setting, B41, correct? Right. Rich? What about the issue, in, I guess it's a trial, so we're going to look, we'll get the answer. The ALTO has a non-trastuzumab arm, and yeah. I know that's a real problem I've had in yeah. the community, and that's why we've just recently submitted the Beth trial because yep. the patients are... It's difficult. I mean, we suspected that in the U.S. group of practicing clinicians that this might be a very real consideration. Ex-U.S., believe it or not, in some countries, adjuvant trastuzumab is still not available. For example, it was just approved by the Japanese regulatory authorities this past February, 2008, adjuvant trastuzumab. So the lion's share of accrual for Alto will occur ex-U.S. There's right. no doubt about that. Those of you who have reservations about a single-agent lipatinib arm, I share some of those reservations. I think it's an active agent targeting ERB-2, but there's no adjuvant efficacy data yet available, and it's a challenge. Having said that, I think it's a very reasonable trial. It does answer all the questions, you know, single-agent for both agents, combination, and the sequence. So it's kind of a scorched-earth study design. I have a little bit more enthusiasm for the combination arm in that study after Joyce O'Shaughnessy's presentation at ASCO in metastatic breast cancer of uh, greater efficacy of the combination even in trastuzumab pretreated patients. So that bodes well for the future of the study and maybe my enthusiasm for that arm offsets my lack of enthusiasm for the lipatinib arm, but it'll accrue largely outside the U.S.